Well, good morning. What a question that I am posing to start this morning. What happens to us after we die? I bet a lot of you have wondered or worried or been anxious about what comes next after you take that last breath, after your eyes close for the last time, after your heart stops beating, after all body functions cease. If you're like a lot of people, though, you probably put those kind of thoughts out of your mind and really try to keep death away from your thoughts. Of course, there are things like the disaster that just struck in Colorado that brings death back into our lives in a way where we think about it. Or earlier this summer when that girl from the north uh, of Topeka had that tragic hit-and-run accident, death comes back into our minds, but we then push it back out again because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about that separation from those who we love. We don't want to think about it because sometimes we're just not so confident about what is going to come next. We have uncertainty in our minds, and part of that comes because of the world that we live in causes us to be more uncertain about what's going to come next. We have books, we have movies, we have science articles, we have all kind of things that are hitting us that just give us a little bit of uncertainty, so we push it out of our minds. But we really shouldn't be that way as Christians because we have the Bible, which tells us a whole lot about what's going to come next. We need to put that first in the way we look at things and not the ideas of the world. And today, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on what the Bible tells us about what comes next. And if we are Christians and have put our faith and trust in Christ, we shouldn't have to fear death like the world may fear it. But if we're not, if we haven't put our faith in Christ, Maybe we should be dreading what comes next. And we'll see a little bit about that as we go on. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us all today through your word, that you would give us confidence in what will follow this life, that we wouldn't have fear, that we would just trust you, Lord. And show us today through your word how we can live without fear fear of what is going to come after this time in this world is over. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I am going to focus on what the Bible says today. I'm going to not speculate. I'm not going to dwell on, a lot of you probably have read a lot of these books. These are recently written books for the most part, where people have talked about to heaven and back type issues, or even to hell and back. I'm not going to dwell on them, but I want to just say that some of these may be good books. They may give you a glimpse at what heaven is, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go just to the Bible today, although you'll see a couple things I'm going to point to the words of some men that I think are worth at least taking a very quick look at, but very little other than what the Bible tells us. If you do read these kind of books or you do hear stories or interviews just, I just recommend that you consider what is being presented in light of Scripture. That's the important part. And so uh, there may be some good stuff here, 
But that's not what today will be about. Okay, first I am going to, I know I said I'm not going to spend much time on the words of men, but I want to start with a couple very wise men's one kind of comment out of them to start us off. Benjamin Franklin said this, and most of you are very familiar probably with this quote, in this world nothing can said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, I'm not going to talk about the taxes, but Ben Franklin says one thing that's very important here. Death is certain. None of us can escape it. It's going to come to all of us. It's really hard for us to see death coming to our children. Or it's, it's easier to see death coming to a person who's lived a good full life, but it's awful hard to see it coming to someone who is young, who we love in our life. But it will. It'll come to every single person in this room it's just the fact that we have to accept whether we do think about it or not. Now, all of us know who C.S. Lewis is, too, probably, the author of the Narnia series and many other good Christian works. He said this, If we really think that home is elsewhere and that this life is a wandering to find home, why should we not look forward to the arrival of death? Well, that is a comment from a person who seems to have an awful lot of confidence this is similar to the words of Paul and Peter in two different ways. Peter said that we are strangers. That's maybe where that concept comes from of wandering. In the first part of his first letter, he talked about us as being strangers and on this earth. Paul said our citizenship is not here on this earth, but it's in heaven. This is kind of what C.S. Lewis is getting at here. And, uh, and I'm thinking, well, that's a strong statement. And in a way, he, he makes death seem not that serious. But yet it's true. We really should be looking at rejoining our fellow believers, our fellow citizens of heaven when we do die in heaven. But some of you may know a man named Rich O'Brien. Um, Rich O'Brien used to be the station manager of KBuzz, and last week my wife and I, Robin, went up to Montana. I had half business, half fun. We visited with Rich and Diane O'Brien, who were good old friends of ours, and I talked with Rich a little bit about this quote and the whole concept of what I was going to be talking about today, and he reminded me of something that I don't have on the slide, but I think is more like most of us look at this, and it's a quote from Billy Graham. Billy Graham, and I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly because Rich and I were just talking about it, and, um, and I think he probably had it pretty accurately when he, he reminded me of this. He said that Billy Graham said, I'm not afraid of death, but I'm fearful of the process of dying. So I think a lot of us may look at it a little more that way, that it is a, none of us want to go through that process. But when you get there, he's not afraid of that. And I think that's more like a lot of us would be when we look at death. Now, I'm going to go to the Bible here and I'm going to look at first this concept of how life is fleeting. It's not only certainty, like Ben Franklin said, it's going to come quickly. It may not seem quick, but yet, with respect to eternity, it really does come fast. And I've got a couple verses that point that out. First, we've got this verse from Psalms 33. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. 
Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. I've got a couple more that I'll put up here that are very much like this. Another psalm. Our days come, may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. One more. James said, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. These verses, and there's probably many others that you could point to also, just indicate that even though our life at times, our days, our hours, just seem like they're just dragging on, going slow, the fact is the years pass quickly, and the older you get, the more quickly they pass. And when we get near the end, it's going to seem like, where did the years go? And so I think that uh, that's a point that Scripture makes. And from an eternal perspective, I think that that is uh, something that will happen to all of us. Now, I want to, not going to spend a lot of time on this. got one slide up here because there are three ideas that I want to point out to you that the world uh, in different sectors point, uh, tell us these are three ideas that may also be related to what follows death, and, and they're all not right. And I'm going to just say these things do not follow death. The first is soul sleep. Some of you may have heard of this concept, and it's exactly what it says. Our soul, which separates from our body at death, goes into this deep sleep and doesn't reawaken until the resurrection. That's even believed within some parts of church, uh, in the Christian church. Some people believe this, but it is so inconsistent, as we shall see as we go on this morning in a variety of ways, how, how this just doesn't make any sense, because we do maintain awareness. Our soul maintains awareness, and we'll have a lot of examples we'll come to. The next one is the concept of purgatory. This is really a Roman Catholic belief. It's also believed by some, probably, who are not Roman Catholic, but primarily in the Roman Catholic Church. And purgatory is a place where every person who they would say has been saved by Christ must go before going to heaven to be purged or cleansed of our uncleanness that we have. These venial sins that we have, which are not distinguished between mortal sins, which I won't go there and talk about those things, but purgatory is the place where we are cleansed so that we are able to go to heaven afterwards because no unclean thing can reach heaven. The problem with purgatory is that it denies the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross. Somehow we... His work was inadequate to do everything we needed to make it to heaven. So that alone is a reason that we shouldn't believe in this. Last thing is the concept annihilation. Now that's not a, a concept within the church. It's a primarily an atheistic belief where when we die, that's it. <clears throat> there is no more us. You are gone, totally gone. There is nothing that follows there's a variation of annihilation that may, it's not exactly the same, but it's within the New Age religions. It's the concept that when we die, our soul goes and becomes part of this cosmic consciousness where somehow there's some kind of bliss 
that can be experienced. That isn't true annihilation because it's not gone, but yet we as an individual are gone. Our identity is gone. We become part of this big cosmic consciousness. All of these are, are wrong. Okay, not only is our time short, but there's something that happens immediately upon death, and that is Hebrews 9, 27. People are destined to die once and after that face the judgment. We're going to have a few slides and talk some about this judgment that comes immediately after death. And this judgment that comes immediately after death is something that may be scary to you if you don't have confidence that you are saved. I want to just say that you can have confidence that you are saved. You don't have to be afraid of this judgment that immediately follows death. 1 John chapter 5 says that we can have confidence and know that we have eternal life. And we need not fret over this judgment that is going to come when we die. But if we don't have that confidence, then uh, that could cause us to have this feeling of fear and uncertainty, but we can. Okay, so what this really tells us, though, if a judgment comes immediately upon death, and I'll go into that a little more in a minute, that means this time on earth is critical to make the decisions that we need to make related to our salvation, and also to take the kind of actions that we need that have eternal consequences as well. This is the time that sets our eternal destination, this time here on earth. I've got a big picture perspective, and then I'll come into some of the details after this. At death, as I just was talking about, there is an initial judgment based upon belief or unbelief in Christ as Savior. That happens immediately, and that determines where we go immediately. And it is a temporary place that we will go to, and I'll talk about that too. Why is it only temporary? But that immediate judgment determines whether we go to heaven or hell. The next step in the process, really, will be to take us out of those temporary places that we're in, heaven or hell, or Hades, as we'll see, Jesus refers to it, for resurrection, where we our soul is reunited with our body. Now there is another judgment that comes, and the timing of the judgment for believers is a little bit uncertain, and I'll talk about that too a little more in, in a minute, but there is additional judgment for rewards and punishment. Not to determine the pathway as to whether it's heaven or hell, but determine whether we are receiving rewards or punishment that may come before resurrection for believers, as you'll see. And then the final step in the process is, after resurrection, our bodies, our resurrected bodies, will end up in one of two places, with God or Jesus in the new heaven and earth or alone in the lake of fire. Now, there's a lot of things we're not going to be able to spend time on today because this, is, this concept of dying and what happens really fits into a much bigger picture of end times eschatology eschatology type issues, things like that, and we're not going to examine those today. But I want you to know that these kinds of end times issues are going to be something that we talk about in some detail in the first 
traditional Sunday school series that's going to be September to October. And at the same time that this is going on, Mike Halpin is going to complement this with a study through, I believe, Second Thessalonians. I think it's second, where there's a lot of these end times issues that will be addressed. So you're going to really get a big dose of eschatology in the fall, late summer, fall. Now, the judgment that follows death, what is the basis for that judgment? We already said, are you trusting in Christ or not? But it really, when you die, what does God see in you? Or when he looks at you? Does he see Christ's shed blood and his righteousness, or does he see your own righteousness? He sees one of those two. There's no other options. He's got to see one of those two things in you, and this will determine where your destiny is. If he sees Christ's shed blood and his righteousness, you, this, this comes because of your faith in Christ. You put your faith in him, And by doing so, you are covered with his blood. So when God looks at you, he sees that righteousness of Christ. That you are then saved from his wrath through that. You're justified by that faith. And your path is determined. Heaven, or as Jesus called it, paradise. And we'll come back to that. If he looks at you and doesn't see Christ's blood covering you, Let's look at Romans 3. If he's looking at your righteousness alone, Romans 3 says no one is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The result of that is tragic. The pathway is Hades or hell and torment, and these are permanent. Once these pathways are determined, there is no turning back. That judgment comes after death, As we said, you must make those decisions before death arrives. Now, let's look back at the souls of believers who go to be with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, this is Paul saying, We're confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So, immediately upon death, your soul goes and joins Jesus. He said the same thing Jesus did when he was being crucified on the cross to the thief next to him. He said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no temporary floating around in the room, looking down at your body, seeing all the people grieving. The Bible doesn't tell us anything like that. It's an immediately. To be absent is to be present. It's an immediate transfer into the presence of Christ. You don't end up going to the pearly gates and have line up and take your turn and justify to Peter why you should be getting into heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. No delay, no additional test, no additional requirements. You're covered with Christ's, Christ's blood You're in the body one second, you're with Christ the next second. That's what the Bible teaches us. So where's Jesus? Jesus is in heaven, he's in paradise, but we have this verse as well to tell us a little bit more. Hebrews 1.3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, 
see in heaven. We get these glimpses of where it is, what it's like. It's a little hard to understand and comprehend, but we get part of the picture at least. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on unbelievers here this morning, but I can't avoid completely addressing it. Because we talked about that pathway going to Hades or torment. And I've got two verses, which most of us are probably familiar with, about a little bit of a description of what it may be like. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, they both died. Jesus told this parable, and he said the rich man also died and was buried. And then he's talking about him being in Hades where he is in torment. That's where that torment word comes from, the descriptor of what this is. And the rich man says to Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So we know it's a place of agony. Jesus referred to it in a different way, though, in Matthew 8:12, He called the place outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think what we take away from these differing perspectives is just the agony of the separation from God, the despair that comes with knowing that this is an eternal condition. It is a... Uh, difficult task. Some of you may have heard of a preacher, Jonathan Edwards, 1741. He wrote a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it vividly described this horrific destiny of the non-believer who didn't trust in Christ as Savior. And God used that sermon to really bring many people to him and to put their trust in Christ. He told the story in depth about what this condition is, the condition that none of us should go away today fearing that may be their destiny. Okay, where is heaven? This is probably uh, the hardest thing to try to answer that I'm trying to do this morning. Heaven's not a physical place. It's a spiritual place. It's a spiritual realm. We live in the physical realm. It's not at the end of the universe, I don't think. I don't think heaven is somewhere you get to the end of the stars and the galaxies and there's heaven. No, heaven seems to be everywhere around us, but yet nowhere in specific. Specifically, it seems like it overlaps or it permeates us, the spiritual realm. And the reason I say that is because we can talk to God. He can hear our prayers. We are also hearing the lies of Satan. So somehow it's around us, even though that is a little bit of speculating. I said I wasn't going to do it, but, but yet we, I just want to get the point across that heaven's not another place that's at the end of our physical universe. That's the main point I want to try to make. It's somewhere around us. It's a different realm. And um, I think the bottom line is, is just that uh, heaven is near us. Near enough for us to speak with God, to communicate with him, and to be influenced by the negative parts of the realm. Now, that spiritual realm, Paul called the third heaven, 
And in this spiritual realm, we have God, Jesus, the angels, deceased believers, and these spiritual forces of evil, Satan and his demons. How they're separated, we don't understand. We can't fully comprehend this. Okay, the judgment after death. This is that second or additional judgment that's going to come. For believers, the time of this is uncertain. What it is, it's the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things while done in the body, whether good or bad. This judgment before Christ is for rewards. When it occurs, uncertain. Does it occur immediately upon death? Not sure. Does it occur after the resurrection? Maybe. But it will occur. This will occur before Christ returns. Now, it's a little more certain for unbelievers. There's another judgment that will occur. At the end of Christ's thousand-year rule, Revelation 20 talks about the great white throne judgment. And it reads, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So every person who is not with Christ in heaven, who is in that torment or Hades, will be resurrected. They will come to life. They will stand before the white throne, and the, the, the books will be opened to see whether their names are in the Lamb's book of life. And if they're not, they get cast into the lake of fire. That is the additional judgment. Now, there are some who think, and we'll get into this more in the fall when we talk about these end times issues, but there could be some people who died during the millennial rule who have not yet been resurrected. They need to get resurrected as well at some point. because. And I can't get into that today. There's just too much detail to try to explain how that works. But some think this great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers, and some think it's for people who have died during the millennial period. And we'll talk about the pluses and minuses of that at a later time. But these are two additional judgments that come after that judgment that is instantly at the time of death to determine rewards and punishment. Now we have a few biblical glimpses of heaven. And the one thing that every one of these glimpses portrays is the holiness of God. Every one. Every time you see heaven portrayed by someone seeing it and talking about it, we see the holiness of God. And I'm going to just talk about a couple of those. Stephen, if you remember, in Acts 7 was being stoned. And as he was being stoned, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That was discussed. Isaiah in chapter 6 talks about seeing the Lord sitting on the throne. He talks about seeing seraphs. And he talks about how unclean he is when he glimpses the holiness of God. He calls himself a man of unclean lips. And so he portrays this holiness in comparison to us. John in Revelation 4 through 7 gives us probably the biggest glimpse of heaven anywhere in Scripture. He talks about seeing the Lamb on the throne 
various kinds of creatures, angels, elders, others that are in heaven. And he, he'll talk about the martyrs that he sees, the souls of the martyrs. He sees all kind of things in heaven. And this is a future view. John is looking prophetically into the future. Isaiah and Stephen were looking at present, what the heaven was like at the time. Paul now was caught up to the third heaven. He talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says he heard inexpressible things, and he was not permitted to tell. That's interesting. It's what he said in that letter, whereas these other writers, or uh, Stephen wasn't a writer, but he, his words were recorded by Luke and Acts, they were permitted to tell what they saw, but Paul said he was not permitted. Okay, now we're going to look at just a few, let's say, specifics about what we can take out of Scripture in some areas that may interest us a whole lot about what heaven will be like. Will we maintain our identity? Well, I think that we can say that one is absolutely yes. We're not going to become some just, I don't know, everybody the same. We are going to maintain our present identity. You will be you. And, and here's a few reasons why I believe that's true. First of all, the concept of names continues. Name, you have a name. The name goes with you. Names are written in the books. And so the names continue into all eternity carry forth. Here's one that I think is really more relevant even than just the name, and it's rewards. Rewards only make sense if identity is maintained. Everyone doesn't receive the same rewards, which means the rewards that you have earned through this life are rewards that carry on for you. They're not equally shared. They're your rewards, and Scripture clearly presents it that way. Revelation 14.13 says, Our deeds follow us into heaven. Again, they follow you, your deeds. They stick with you. And you then link that back to the concept of reward. There are examples that we have, and here's a few of them, of people who have died and maintained their identity. We already talked about Lazarus and the rich man. Moses and Elijah, who died, came back and appeared during the time of that transfiguration when they met up with Jesus uh, before he, Jesus was crucified. There's martyrs whose identity are maintained. There is a couple places in Scripture that talking about eating at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning these three men are going to continue to have their identity maintained in heaven. There are other examples as well. This one is difficult. Well, we have physical bodies. Well, for this temporary heaven, this place before the resurrection, it's a little unclear how to answer that question. We know that it is our soul because John, in Revelation, talks about how the martyrs' souls were under the altar. He saw them as souls, but yet these souls were clothed. That's, if a soul is a spiritual being only, how can it be clothed? When we saw the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man had a tongue and pain. He could feel pain. Lazarus had a finger. He said, dip his finger on water and put it on my tongue. 
And the resurrected Jesus is there. We know Jesus has a resurrected body, and he is there. So in this present heaven, it's unclear. It's unclear exactly what that existence will be like. We know we have awareness. We know we have identity. We know some of these feelings or sensations apply, but we aren't exactly sure. So can't go any further than that, probably. Now, following resurrection, it's a lot clearer. After we get a resurrected body, we have a physical, spiritual body. Now, that sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? To say it's physical and spiritual at the same time. But it is, because that's what Scripture says. We have spiritual bodies. It must have something to do more with the capabilities and qualities of that body, the origin of the body. The origin is spiritual and not fleshly or natural. More power or something that comes with it. In Philippians 3.21, Jesus said that our bodies will be transformed, our lowly bodies, so that they will be like his glorious body. And so we have a good evidence of what our body is going to be like. It's going to be like his, and we know that he said in Luke 24, 39, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So Jesus is emphasizing that this spiritual body that we're going to have is flesh and bones. When our soul is reunited to a body, it will be something that can be touched and felt. So when we live in the new heaven and earth, we're going to be in a body that is not like our lowly body, but it's going to be a glorious body. It's going to be incorruptible. It's going to have so many positive aspects that are not subject to the sin and the curse that we live in today. So that is something we can look forward to, is this kind of spiritual body that we will have. Now that's the long term. In the short term, it's a little bit more uncertain. Okay, is there time in heaven? Well, there is some people who say, no, there's really not any time. And they point to the King James Version translation of Revelation 10.6, which says, there shall, be no time, there shall be time no longer. Well, every other translation that I could find says, there shall be no more delay, is the way they translated that. And so I don't think that verse really should be the basis for saying there's no time. Some point to 2 Peter 3.8, where he says, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, to show there's no real measurement of time in heaven. Well, we're uncertain about this, but I, we can at least say we think there's some aspects of time in heaven, and here's why. There's a few places in Revelation, and I just went to Revelation, there could be other places, but each one of these seems to imply that there is some awareness of time in heaven. In Revelation 6, the martyrs ask God, how long until you avenge our blood? To ask that question, they have to be seeing that there is passage of time. In Revelation 22, the tree of life bears fruit every month. So somehow the concept months this would be in the new heaven and earth, after we have resurrected bodies, that that occurs. But somehow there's some passage of time at that point. 
Revelation 7, the martyrs are remembering the past, referring back again really to 6 in a way where they're looking for some avenging of what occurred for them to become be killed during the tribulation. Revelation 5, elders and creatures sing a song. Music requires time, doesn't it? You can't have music without time, can you, Bill? I, I, I think even just talking, communicating, Music needs time, or it doesn't work. And there's music in heaven for sure. And finally, Revelation 8, silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, there's at least some aspects of time seem to be continuing in heaven. Okay, relationships. This may be the one that concerns you the most. Of everything that we talk about today, are we going to have relationships with our loved ones in heaven? Are we going to know the people around us? Are we going to recognize them? Are we going to be able to communicate with them? Well, I will say yes, but let's look at what relationship matters the most in heaven. And I think we can say our relationship with God, with Christ, is going to be number one, and that's what's going to be most important to us. Two verses I picked out. First, that's... 417, and we will be with the Lord forever. So, okay, we're in his presence. We are experiencing him forever. 7325 Psalms. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire beside you. Now, these don't say the only relationship we're going to have is with Christ. It doesn't say that. And I don't think that's really all there will be. But it, sh- it is going to be number one our relationship with him, being in his presence. When we're in his presence, it's going to be hard to beat that relationship. Now, Jesus gave us some glimpses of things to expect. Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. We're like the angels, is what he said. If there's no marriage and no sin, I think we should assume there's no sex, no sexual relationships. That's what I would say. But just because we don't have a marriage relationship that we will continue in heaven, are we not even going to have a relationship with our current wife or husband or our children? I don't think that's true, but yet Scripture's not so clear as a bell on this one as to what those relationships are going to be like. I've got a few things that imply that we will have relationships with others. In Genesis 2... God said it was not good for man to be alone. Now, Adam had that relationship with God, didn't he, at that time, back in Genesis. And if that would have been all God thought was necessary, he could have just had that relationship with Adam. But yet he realized that a relationship with another human was important. And so why would that end? Why would that relationship not continue over into heaven where a more perfect relationship could exist. There's always people together in heaven too. The martyrs, the multitude. People are always in crowds. You know, it seems like. So undoubtedly, if we're in a crowd, there's probably going to be some relationship going on. We are going to eat at the table of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's some interaction there. You're eating with them at the table. 
This wedding of the lamb to his bride, you can just imagine that wedding feast and all the interaction that's going on among the people who were present at that time. And then three concepts, the perfection of heaven, no sin, and just think how that can make for really good relationships. Right now, we are sinful people living on the earth, and our relationships are all tarnished by our sinful nature. There's selfishness, there's other things going on. Just imagine, no sin and how perfect those relationships can be in heaven. And the concept of love, the two commandments that Jesus said everything else hangs on is to love God, that's that relationship we said is going to be number one, but the second one is to love one another. Why would that end in heaven? That would be something that is something that God would continue on for all eternity, that relationship. And the concept of love and friendships kind of interlap with one another. Why would they go away? They're things that God and Jesus has taught are so important here and now in our sinful state. Why not be equally important in our eternal, non-sinning environment, no-sin environment? Okay, so what happens after we die? I'm going to kind of sum up here in a couple different ways. I picked two verses that I think should help us have some peace about what comes next. This one from Revelation 21 is really referring again to the new heaven and earth, and it says, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. This is that perfect environment where we can love one another, love God, be in his presence, have perfect relationships. The old order, the sinful order, the curse has all passed away. That's something we can look forward to in the long term. But even in the short term, in that temporary existence that we have before we're resurrected, even then, Romans 8 38-39 says, Death will not separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. And to me, this is just saying, we've got this love relationship with Christ, which will immediately be enhanced upon death in his presence. Now, I'm going to end with, and I'm not even positive I'll pronounce his last name right, J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, from England during the mid-1800s. And I'd like to read, just to end, a, a couple, a quote from him from a sermon, and then a couple more lighthearted ideas uh, from some other people. Let me read this from J.C. Ryle. This life, so full of trouble and sorrow and care, of anxiety and labor and toil, this life of losses and bereavements, of partings and separations, of mourning and woe, of sickness and pain, truly I should be crushed to the very earth with misery if I felt this life were all. If I thought there was nothing for me beyond the dark, cold, silent, lonely grave, I would indeed say it would be better never to have been born. Thanks be to God, this life is not all. I know I am persuaded there is a glorious rest beyond the tomb. This earth is only a training school for eternity. These graves are but the stepping stone of half and halfway house to heaven. I am assured that this, my poor body, shall rise again. This corruptible shall yet put on incorruption, 
and this mere mortality to be with Christ forever. Yes, heaven is truth and no lie. Heaven shall be a place of perfect rest and peace. Those who dwell there have no more conflict with the world, the flesh, or the devil. Their warfare is accomplished. They may lay aside the armor of God. And finally, all of you know who Peter Pan is. Peter Pan said that death will be an awfully big adventure. I never knew he said that until I prepared for this lesson in, in Peter Pan. But Randy Alcorn, many of you may have read his book, Heaven. It's a big, fat book on heaven. And he does a lot of speculating in his book, but it's good. I would strongly recommend it to anyone. But Randy Alcorn elaborated on what Peter Pan said. He said it will be a wonderful big adventure for those who are covered by the blood of Christ. And I would add to that those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the same thing, those who are covered by the blood. But he ends with, but those who die without Jesus will experience a horrifying tragedy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you tell us in your word about heaven, about eternity, about what we can expect if we put our trust in you. But Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not put their trust in you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you will awaken them, that you'll touch their hearts, that we will draw them to you, because we know it is you who does that drawing. Use us, Lord, to reach those people, and if any are here today, who need to make that decision to be confident and assured that they will be on the path to heaven, not knowing when death may arrive. Help them make that decision today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.